Would you please turn with me in your Bibles or the Bibles provided in your pew to Luke chapter 7, verses 14 to 17. Luke chapter 7, verses 14 to 17. You can find it on page 863 in the Bibles provided for you. It's not a very Christmassy text, but I do believe that when we study it, after studying it, it will make all of the Christmas texts even more precious to us. Over the course of Advent, we've been looking at various Christmassy texts, Advent texts, announcing the birth of Jesus and all of the promises made concerning Him. And then we've, we've compared those passages to verses within Uh, Revelation 14, where all of that will be fulfilled perfectly at the great day. But tonight I want to show you a text in which Jesus proved in the meantime that He was the one the prophets had promised. All through biblical history, God had told His people, a Messiah is coming. And then he gave them uh, signs and, and characteristics and attributes, indications that they were to look for. And they said, when, when all of these line up, when these all come together, you will know that the Messiah has come. And the, the, the Son of God, to bring the kingdom of God to earth, he has shown up. When all of these signs, these characteristics fall in line, you will know he's here. Mary said in her Magnificat, in her, in her soul's outburst to the Lord when she heard that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. She said, among other things in Luke chapter 1, exalted, he has exalted those of humble estate and filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Did Jesus do that? Did Jesus pursue the humble and the lowliest in fulfillment of the promised Messiah? I would say to you that if we had no other passage in the New Testament other than the account of the resurrection, the one we are about to read from Luke chapter 7 would prove that He indeed came and is a Savior for us. Look with me at verses 14 to 17 of Luke chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and His disciples and a great crowd went with Him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier. And the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, and he began to speak, 
And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited or helped his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When I was in college, or just out of college, I was working a summer job and I had plans to get engaged to Jackie, to pop the question, to put a ring on her finger. And in one of those odd jobs I had, I found a ring in the dirt. It was a huge diamond ring, I was convinced. God had provided right there. I wasn't going to have to pay for it. I didn't mean that. A big diamond ring. But my brother is a jeweler, a gemologist. And uh, so I didn't really ask him whether or not it was a diamond. I took it to him to have it reset in a better setting. But uh, he took this rock and uh, he held it up and put his loops on and his bright lights and magnifying glass and he looked it over and within five seconds he said, it's fake. I said, no, it's not fake. It's a diamond. No, it's fake. How do you know it's fake? It looks perfect. Look how it glistens. Look how clear and beautiful it is. He said, that's the problem. It's too clean. Diamonds come out of the ground, George. They come out of the earth. So they have stuff in them. They're called inclusions, mineral deposits, and other things that show that it's come out of the earth. This is too clean. It's made in a lab. It's called a cubic zirconia. Devastated. She did get a ring, it was a, and it's a diamond. Not nearly as big as that one. <clears throat> Too clean. Is that the problem with your Savior? Either your caricature of the Lord Jesus or one you've made up. He's too clean. He's the, you, you've crafted him in such a way that there's actually nothing he can do for you because you're too dirty, you're too imperfect, you're too far away. For him to be your savior, you have to be exactly like him, this picture that you've made, and, and that's impossible. What is it about this story? What is it that Jesus did in this story that convinced these people that he was not only a prophet, but he is the great prophet. They knew their Bibles. They knew what Moses had said. They knew that he'd said in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord is going to send to you another prophet, a perfect prophet. He's going to be like me in certain ways. He's going to be unlike me in all of the exceptional ways. How did they know just by his raising this dead man that he was that great prophet. Was it that? Was it that miracle? 
I don't think so. Let's walk through the passage as a good reporter and see if we can figure out why they concluded that this Jesus was and is the Christ. So the question we ask, the first question we have to ask in these, in these uh, examinations is who is involved here? There is, of course, Jesus. Now, Luke calls him the Lord, very uncharacteristic of the other gospels before his resurrection. But Luke already calls him the Lord. The Lord is in this story. The crowds are in the story. Lots of lay people, not the religious professionals. There is the dead man on the stretcher being followed by a group of mourners. And then there is the widow, the widow of Nain. Now, we're told that uh, this widow only had one son. This was her only begotten son, and he was dead. And people were crying because that was the polite thing to do. It's also because that in Israel, the saddest event, the saddest suffering that could beset any human being was for a widow to be bereft of her only begotten son. Not only because of the excruciating pain of losing a child, but because she has, was hopeless without him. Now, women were not thought highly of anyway in this, this time. They were not even thought highly of by religious professionals. That was not scriptural. It was part of the invented religion they had. Women were looked down upon, and especially widows, because now they were really a drag on society. They had no skills. They couldn't work. Their only hope would be to have a son who could work and bring, uh, bring uh, sustenance home, and, and now she's, she's lost that. Now she's just going to be a drag on society. She's going to be sitting outside the temple at the city gate begging for leftovers from people's generosity. It's a sad, sad day. Jeremiah and Amos and, and Zechariah say that this kind, of, this kind of loss is the saddest of all losses. This is the widow of Nain. That's who that was. This is what is happening. This is the funeral procession. What else is happening? What else happens that gets people's attention? It is that Jesus not only takes notice of this funeral procession, but he moves toward it. And then he finds the widow. And then he does the unthinkable. He touches that dead body making him, according to the Old Testament law, unclean, dirty, to be put outside the camp, put away from other people so that he doesn't contaminate them too. Where did this happen? In Nain. What in the world is Nain exactly? It's no more significant today than it was then, six miles southeast of Nazareth, not on the way to any place, an insignificant town then, today has less than 200 people. Jesus went there and found this woman. When did he do it? Look just above in verse, verses uh, 10, 9, 10, so forth. This is the story of Jesus 
going to the centurion's house and healing his servant. A centurion was a, a powerful person, ruled over a hundred Roman soldiers. It's impressive. He was thought highly of. And apparently he was a godly man, at least had enough faith to call on the Savior to cure this man that nobody else cared for, but he loved him. This occurs right after that. But you know, when we look at that story, we don't see that story ending the same way this story ends. In verse 17, this one ends with a report that spreads throughout all of Judea and the surrounding country. But Jesus also healed someone here, and the report didn't spread so widely. What's the difference? It is the difference that explains how these people understood that this was not only a prophet, but the great prophet, the great prophet, the Savior of the world, the one Mary praised. How did they know that? Well, they knew it for one, because, uh, because Moses said he's going to be a prophet like me, and Moses was this kind of prophet. He was one who said, this is what the Lord says. And to prove to you that the Lord says this, this is going to happen in the near future. And then that miracle would occur. And Moses said, that's the only one you're to accept as a, the only kind of prophet you're to accept from now on. That's the only one whose writings you are to put in the Bible. It's one who says he's from the Lord. He teaches what is in consistency, what is consistent with my teaching. And then uh, there's a prophecy and a fulfilled miracle that proves that this is from the Lord. That person is a prophet. Well, Jesus did that. He taught in consistency with uh, what Moses had taught, and, and he performed a lot of miracles. But he had been doing that a while. He'd been performing miracles all over the place. He'd been teaching in cons uh, consistently with Moses' teaching all over the place. But they didn't say earlier that this is the great prophet. Why do they now say, after healing this only begotten son of the widow of Nain touching his body so as to become unclean. Why do they say now, this is the great prophet, the Messiah has arrived? Because this is what the prophets of God did for one. They sought out the lowliest. And they applied the good news. They recognized that that Jesus wasn't just any prophet. He was a prophet like Elijah and Elisha who went to poor women whose only begotten sons had died and he brought them, those prophets brought them to life. These people looking at what Jesus did concluded this is the son of God, the great prophet because he taught in consistency with what Moses had said. He has done miracles, yes, check and check. And he sought out those nobody else cares about. And he brings them to life. This is the prophet of God. This is the Messiah. 
And this is the good news of Christmas for you. The Savior who has come to us is not one who says, when you clean yourselves up enough, make yourselves perfect enough, reform yourselves enough, get enough under control, get your life disciplined enough, get back in the good graces of those you've disappointed, find a way to dig yourself out from under your shame. When you get good enough, come to me and I'll be your Savior. This is not Jesus. Jesus went to the city. Let me back up. Jesus came to earth. And Jesus went to the city of Nain, the village of Nain. He didn't find a rich woman who could benefit his ministry. He found a widow there who had lost her only begotten son, someone who was a real drag on society. He went to the body of that dead man and he touched him. He became dirty in order to bring life and cleansing. And this is the Savior who from there eventually went to the cross to pay the penalty with his clean blood for all of our filth that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have eternal life as Pastor Todd has already quoted for us. And this is the Savior who was announced by the angels and is announced to you this evening, today, a Savior has been born. A Savior for all the peoples, especially the unclean ones, the ones who confess that they have nothing and desperately plead for a Savior. What's keeping you away this evening? What's keeping you from embracing that Savior? Because you think you'll never be good enough? Or think that you are too good? Or think that at one time you were good enough and you were a Christian, but now you've brought shame on your family and everyone else and, and you, can, you can never atone for that. You can never forgive yourself for that. All of those are inventions of false saviors. There's only one Savior, and it is this one, who came into the world to seek and to save not the found but the lost, who came into the world to continue to shepherd those who come to Him even after their failures and their disappointments and the shame they bring on themselves and others. The only way you can know, the way they recognize that this Savior was the right one is He was dirty enough to be their Savior. He had taken on their flesh and He would reached in to their brokenness in the darkest and dirtiest and most hopeless cases, situation, and said, let there be life. 
friend of mine used to be a missionary in, in Bermuda, and while he was there, his church members, the, 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 the school children created a Christmas play, and they had this line in one of their Christmas songs, Jesus, Lord, what mac you come down to we? Leave you home. Come mix up with such as me. This is a Savior who mixes up with us. And He's there now. He is right here, right now. He has sought you and He found you tonight. You haven't been lost from Him. He wasn't, He wasn't, uh, He didn't, it wasn't that He didn't know where you were. He's been there all along calling to you. And regardless of how you've tried to shut him out or the way you, regardless of how generous you've been to try to guard his reputation from yourself because you've sinned beyond the pale, regardless, he's never left because this is the seeking Savior who comes to mix up with such as we. My favorite conversion story is one that I've read in a number of places to small groups around this church, but I haven't shared it with you yet. It comes from a, a woman who is a famous writer. She's still really rough around the edges. If you've been in the church for a long time and you've learned how to speak Christianese and so forth, she can really offend you. But I want you to listen how far the Savior goes to save. And pray by the end you see yourself in the same shoes and give in to the same Savior. She was lying drunk in her little hammock that she had rented in a houseboat. She was drunk. She was addicted to cocaine, and she was in an affair with a married man. This is what she says. After a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me. Hunkered down in the corner, I just assumed it was my father, whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there, and of course there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt it was Jesus. I felt Him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this, and I was appalled. I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian. And it seemed an utter impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and I said out loud, I would rather die. But I felt him just sitting there on his haunches in the corner. He was watching me with patience and love. I squinched my eyes shut, but that didn't help because it was not my physical eyes with which I was seeing him. Finally, I fell asleep, and in the morning he was gone. 
This experience spooked me badly, but I thought it was just an apparition born of fear and self-loathing and booze and loss of blood. But then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me, wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, it stays forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it slamming my houseboat door when I entered or left. And one week later, I went back to church. I went to church. I was so hungover, I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time, I stayed for the sermon. The sermon, I just thought, was so ridiculous. Like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure, I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the verses, in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling and it washed over me. I began to cry. And before the benediction, I raced home and felt the little cat running at my heels. And I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my houseboat. And I stood there a minute. I hung my head and I said, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, come on in. That was my beautiful moment of conversion. Maybe you feel that uh, somehow you are the only one in this sanctuary tonight or the only one tuning in and that you are the only one being spoken to. Well, you're not the only one but you are being spoken to, not by me, but by Jesus, who has been seeking you all along. And not just for the first time, but maybe you've walked with him for many, many years and he still seeks you. You can't shake him. And no matter what you've done, what you've thought, where you've been. Jesus sits there on his haunches and he waits for you. And tonight to impress that upon you especially invites you to a supper like this. And he doesn't take a cup and you splash it all over you and throw a bunch of bread like he's scattering seeds. But there's one cup with a piece of bread and another cup with juice individually prepared for you so that you understand Jesus is saying to you, you come to me. I've come for you. And though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be like crimson, they shall be as wool. Whether you've sinned against him this one latest time or million times in the past. It is this Savior who Mary saw, who would be distinguished
by the fact that he exalts the humble in their estate. He fills the hungry with good things. He sends those who perceive themselves to be rich and without need, he sends them away empty. But those who come hungering and thirsting, those who recognize you bring no worth to this table, these are the ones Jesus said, I came to seek and to save.